record 61-yard field goal to end the half. And he needed every bit of it. Just over the crossbar. I'll use a baseball analogy, but sometimes you go up to the plate, you know, and you don't have your way. Um, so that's what it was today. And so, um, you know, I, I look forward to, um, you know, getting back after it and getting back to work and just uh, finding my best again. And just uh, I have no doubt that, uh, you know, you know, greatness is in store. I have no, no doubt that uh, we're going to get back on track. I have no doubt that uh, we as a team and we're going to find a way and we're going to have better days ahead. On a dark week, we bring some potential light to the six or seven people who are listening. Welcome to another episode of the Pedestrian Podcast. Joining myself, as always, Stuart Court, is Mr. Adam Nathan. How are we, sir? I'm not bad. I told you Tim Krull always fucks you. He always does it. I warned you. You all laughed. You all laughed at me last week. But I mean, again. That uh, bit went down like a, like I tweeted. That bit went down like a Chappelle bit. That did. Yeah, it was good. And and also obviously Gerald Everett is the other one who does nothing for fourteen games a year, and then twice a year just becomes like Travis Kelsey and Antonio, you know, Antonio Gates, and all of them put together against us, just you know, an unstoppable force against the Seahawks every time. Oh, do you remember Antonio Gates against the Seahawks? He murdered us in that game after we won the Super Bowl horrible. down in like. A thousand Celsius, yeah. and it's too hot to run. I think he had about 75 catches in that game alone. Yeah, so after 130 episodes of dumbing everything down for our listeners, we decided to just make my, me and myself and Adam look rather silly and rather, uh, well, very much dumber than we usually do on a weekly basis. As we welcome on Matty Brown, if anyone who's on social media, especially Twitter, who follows Matty, is just grinding, as we said. Uh, before we start recording, just ridiculous amount, ridiculous level, and just to ridiculous detail on what the Seahawks do, particularly mostly on the defensive side, but also he was the first champion in Team Shotty as well when the entire world was against him a couple of weeks ago, uh, a couple of years ago. Welcome to the Pedestrian Podcast, Matt. <laughs> wow, thanks. What a lovely introduction, Stuart. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Really excited to dig into it. Even. And this is probably the first time you've had back-to-back Newcastle United fans on, and that Tim Krul <laughs> reference, my word, that, I, I enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> I mean, in, in the nicest way possible, Matty, you are insane. Um, and I, and I, and I, it's probably a bigger compliment than I've given, you know, Mina Kimes and Cliff Averill. No, I've not said anyone anything as nice to, to them when they've been on the podcast. I mean, how did you get started? I mean, for, as I was saying to, uh, to before we started, I mean, there, there are players on the Seahawks team that have been mentioning that Matty's tape study of the of the defense is spot on and better than kind of anyone else's and you are from somewhere in the UK we're about to find out where I mean tell us about how you got started on all this because you know your your rise to uh, certainly social media prominence uh, is probably not not that typical as of uh, tape grinders uh, of NFL fans for sure so I was born in London and I always whereabouts uh Ealing okay yep and it's always odd to have someone ask you it's nice to be on a British podcast because usually you go on a podcast you say <laughs> I was born in London they go oh yeah and then that's it but because I'm speaking to English people I can actually say oh yeah Ealing and people actually understand that <laughs> anyway um yeah and then I obviously I liked football growing up soccer for the American listeners and 
chose Newcastle. That was a bad decision. But the main part of football, which excited me, was the tactics and like the formations. As that sort of nerdy kid at school who, rather than focusing on his work, was drawing out formations and like what, thinking of how things worked. And then I went to university, uh, UEA, uh, in East Anglia, Norwich, and. I found out there was this game called American football and I'd already started watching bits and bobs of that in uh, 2012 and like, like the Seahawks because of Russell Wilson, Marshawn Lynch and all of that goodness. And I was like, this is way more tactical than anything I've un- like seen before. And I've really understood like and, and whatnot. And it all just grew from there. And, you know, here we are today. Yeah. Cause I, I look- Adam often jokes that he doesn't think I sleep, but then I was like, "Well, just Matty Brown's Twitter is constantly on the go, so your 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 body clock makes me feel much healthier about mine, Matty. I've got to be honest. <laughs> it's a struggle, you know. <laughs> I need to I need to try and find a way to get a a coffee um, sponsorship or, or something. <laughs> I mean, the the first time I realised that you were completely mad was when I think you tweeted out that you were transforming your body clock to an American body clock, maybe a year or so ago. <laughs> There's a few bits, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Have I become more insane since doing that? Possibly. Have <laughs> I been able to watch more American football? Yes, most definitely. So, you know, oh, so it's, it's a, a nice trade situation. Yeah, exactly. Risk reward. Good way of phrasing it. High reward, in my opinion. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't have to suffer the risks. So, yeah, Sunday night was, as we said on text, which Adam, rather dark. Uh, Jackson Bevins put on field goals. It was the heaviest seven-point blowout in NFL history. It wasn't pretty, was it? It wasn't. I mean, yeah, the first half was just, obviously, you know, the people were just volcanic on social media with their anger. Um, and in the second half, it, it was strange because at one point it was a seven-point game. You know, it finished a seven-point game, but... Contrary to the Buffalo game, where I think I texted you and everyone that I knew that was watching saying, like, all the money you've got, stick it on Seattle to come back here. I just didn't get that feeling at all on Sunday. And for the first time uh, watching, like, one of these Seahawk comebacks, I just found it incredibly dull. And it just felt like we were running through treacle and just very stodgy and nothing was ever going to come from it. And I was just sort of waiting for the clock to hit four zeros. I don't know what you reckon about that, Matty. Agree with what you just said, Adam. I mean, it was a grim affair, start to finish. First half, the offense had some spark, but the defense looked crap. And then, you know, I didn't see how the defense was going to turn it around because they weren't executing and the play calling was kind of questionable. Then in the second half, the defense comes out, they start to execute, they get a bit of luck, which is always nice, like Jared Goff overthrowing that third and five to Tyler Higby sticking in the mind with KJ Wright matched up with him. And then the offense just couldn't get it going. And th- there's been warning signs of this happening uh, f- through a number of games that they can't deal with being in passing situations like uh, third and longs and getting pressured. Uh, Pete Carroll, after the game, threw Russell Wilson a bit under the bus and said that they need to throw hot more to beat the blitz. So, that, you know, blaming the quarterback, not the offensive line for the pressures. There is also the fact that Russell Wilson is. Uh, very much the most accountable person in, in all of this, given that he, you know, he's on a franchise quarterback deal and also he's going to be there forever. He, it's, what's the merits of uh, crapping on backup center? You know, Kyle Fuller it, it doesn't really achieve anything, but yeah, really grim, grim performance uh, and, and just no hope uh, throughout it really. And no, no spark. Um, yeah. 
upsetting times. Yeah, it's just kind of like we even it's just there was like the start of the podcast is Jason Myers's field goal because that was like the one highlight <laughs> in the game on Sunday. It's Sixty-one yards, Joe, Joe Buck all over it as well. But it's it's just. Yeah, like, I was just, I was just, I was just breathing my phone for the most. Of it. It's just, oh yeah, this ain't gonna happen. But like, I was, I was texting with one of my mates who is a Rams fan. He's like, yeah, no, no, it's still a game. It's like, no, it's not. Like, it's just, there's gonna be a player which is gonna go, okay, this is like the scoreboard reflects what's happened. And, I was just, and when it finished, I just text him, thank Christ, that's over. And he's like, no, I enjoyed that. I was like, well, yeah, you would. But um, but yeah, it's just on the offensive side. Obviously, Russell Wilson's, as you say, is accountable for it. Took all the blame of me at the after game on Sunday, as he just needs to be better, which which is obvious to anyone watching. But it is it, a lot of it seems to be coming. Matty pointing back around to the running back situation, obviously, because it kind of does line up pretty prominently with when Chris Carson left the game in Arizona. And then up until, as we chat now, the running game is, and the whole offense has splitted since uh, Carson limped off into the locker room, what, three and a half weeks ago? Yeah, and well, Pete Carroll himself said on the Monday, in his Monday press conference that, you know, he admitted things do feel different without Carson. And, it, you know, if he's saying that, clearly there's... And also Brian Schottenheimer himself, he will call plays which are the strengths to, you know... He, his player skill set and Carson being that all all down, every down, versatile back who can get it done on a variety of concepts, run or pass, it, it is influencing them. One thing, my one critique I'd have of the play calling last Sunday was, you know, okay, Russell Wilson's getting heated up. Okay, he's for whatever reason reading deep to shallow still on like stuff where he's getting pressured and should get the ball out quick because the protection scheme isn't designed to pick up the extra rusher. But where was the screens? Like, where was the uh, where was the yak opportunities? Where's the, the the little throws they have on the side of runs which they they throw instead of the run? I, that was all missing for me. So that, that's a few things. But and you know they needed to get DK Metcalf involved more. They seemed terrified of Jalen Ramsey throughout the game. Like even for, they didn't want to throw like a a wide receiver screen to his side with him playing off. Like they still didn't want to do that. So. Yeah, but the, but the it comes back to Wilson was just so uncharacteristically weird, like in, in like that interception. I was just so odd, um, mm. like pressing too much. The, the environment's clearly um, causing pressure, and that's not just Carson missing, but it's also you know the defense being hideous and <laughs> and maybe all of the talk of like an MVP campaign. He just needs to sort of scale it back. Um, and Thursday's a good opportunity. Yeah. Also, obviously, Kyle Fuller, as you mentioned, was the starting centre, the, the backup centre to Ethan Postage. I mean, at the start of the season, he was the third choice behind Postage and hmm. Finney. Do you think that had any impact? Like, obviously, he talked him up during the week, but do you think that had any impact? He's, he was a little bit, maybe a little, uh, a little less sure of, or was more unsure on what the guys were doing, like protection-wise, in front of him. Yeah, I think. Uh, I think that's a good point. It's, it's definitely relevant. Like Wilson, without the people who he trusts in front of him, is always a bit more skittish, isn't he? Mm. And like he's clearly got a relationship with Ethan Posick, uh, and and really Fuller. Like I don't think he was that bad. And I said before the game that the game plan for Fuller in wouldn't have been that different with handling Aaron Donald because it's Aaron Donald. Posick himself can't handle guys one on one. He's too small. He's had struggles in the run game in the past game, but he's sort of reliable in that you know where he's going to be beat. 
Uh, you know how he's going to struggle in, in certain blocks in the run game. Whereas with Fuller in, it's, it's more like sort of fear of the unknown. And while they handled Aaron Donald well, you did see Russell Wilson slide a bit earlier away from like clean pockets. He was very hesitant to step up. He sort of reverted to the, the bad old days of like backdoor or sideways escape rather than taking the opportunities to move up in the pocket. And that's sort of a hangover from like 2017 where the, the offense had probably one of their worst, most patchy years and sort of Daryl Bevel fired because of it. And Wilson had to be built back up as a pocket passer. But yeah, this was just like sort of a regression. And I think the backup center issue, it has to be there, even though I don't think, you know, Fuller may have done quite bad, but the game plan wasn't different. And how many times did Aaron Donald actually get through to Wilson? Not many. So, you know, he did fine for a backup. Uh, this is pro- properly hypothetical, but um, I'm all, Wilson has mentioned quite a few times about how when he goes to a stadium, he likes to know, you know, where his sight lines are, what the angles are like. And um, there was one image that was quite interesting. When, when he took the last delay of game, um, the clock is literally right in front of him, uh, ticking down. And I wonder if there was this kind of, because of, you know, the lack of time they were able to spend in Los Angeles because of COVID or, or whatever, I wonder if maybe he just he just felt completely, you know, a, a cricketer when they're when they're a batsman that you know likes to reset himself at every ball. And I just wonder if that level of uncertainty to the point where he almost looked like injured or almost concussed in the way he was playing, which just came to almost like a lack of self preparation. Um, and enough, like the the pick that he threw, they they showed one uh, angle of it from behind the throw, and it was almost like he didn't he couldn't see the blue and the yellow of the guy because it was fading in with the, uh, the colors in the end zone. It, it was such an uncharacteristic performance that it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if there was something in him where he just didn't feel mentally ready to play a game in a new stadium. Uh, I can't think of when the last time he played a game in a, in a new stadium for the first time was it probably would have been Buffalo actually, wouldn't it? Which yeah. again was not a particularly good performance. And I, I wonder, and again, I'm being hugely you know, hypothetical, but I wonder if there might be something in that. Great point. I've, yeah, again, it's all that whole environmental factor of, you know, you, you sort of, you remove one thing from it and, and it, it gets a bit patchier, but it's sort of the perfect storm. If you look at it with like a, a fresh face and the benefit of hindsight with that whole, that that clock sequence was so odd. <laughs> at that point, you know, he'd thrown the weird pick and everyone was like, okay, that, that, that was odd. Why are you throwing that late across your body? Like, why didn't you see it earlier? Like, why did you slide so aggressively when the the O line had it had it dealt with? Uh, but bad pick, we move, and then the clock thing was like, oh yeah, Russell's really not right today. Mm. Uh, so one thing you tweeted during the game, I think it was after Troy Aitman pointed out, um, it was well, he, I think he commented on that he was as bailing out or he was giving up on plays earlier. You said it was an interesting comment from Aikman. Uh, how so from Aikman? Obviously, it's year nine, year 10 for Russell now. And the fact that Troy Aikman's still making those comments is slightly concerning, isn't it? But like, what's the context of that? Just really nice to hear. <clears throat> well, not really nice. It's, it's, it's not nice to hear it, but it's... it's um, it's interesting to hear analysts actually criticise Russell Wilson. Mm. Usually there's other things going on. You'd, you'd like have a pop at the play calling, which, you know, I've done. Like I think there was stuff that they could have done better. Or you'd have a pop at the offensive line. Or you'd say the receivers aren't getting open. Or you'd say the defence was crap. But that was just, what? Hang on. Why? 
why is Russell escaping from this? Why isn't he seeing this? Mm. Um, so it was interesting to hear Aikman actually uh, criticise Russell Wilson. And throughout the game, they sort of uh, engaged with and encouraged and probably developed the narrative that Russell Wilson was off. Like they, they were very much playing into that. And yeah, it, it, was, it was apparent to everyone. Yeah, it's 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 always enjoyable when Joe Brock just does not like what he's watching. I think he he pointed that out <laughs> a few times with the Seahawks defense on Sunday. Uh, I'll I'll I mentioned Metcalf, but one thing, another thing, since that has come to fruition since that Arizona game, especially that second half in Arizona, is when they send in all the blitzes as Vance Joseph, Joseph did, Sean McDermott did this last week, and uh, uh, Staley did. It's not as regular as the other two on Sunday, but there, there doesn't seem to me and Adam and are untrained either. There doesn't seem to be the adjustments being made to the play call. And, and like, I mean, Schottenheimer and that, Schottenheimer Russell in that first half in Arizona was as good as it's ever been. I mean, that first drive is something we don't ever really see from the Seahawks, even with an all-world guy at quarterback. Is, is, that, is there some legitimacy to him not really, or them, obviously it's, it's, a, it's a group thing, I get, I'm guessing, but is there legitimacy to be concerned how they're not quickly or clearly or tangibly making adjustments when the defence starts start sending the house and the Seahawks appear to, appear to have no answer for it? Uh, there's definitely legitimacy to it because it, it was even an issue in the Miami Dolphins game. Like, uh, what... Brian Flores, like he found ways to break what Seattle was doing protection-wise up front. With them playing so much like uh, gun and even empty with no one in the backfield, they're like having a lot of five and six-man protections, which mean that the you know for the if they bring a sixth guy versus the five-man protection, or if they bring a seventh guy versus the sixth-man protection, you know Russell Wilson is accountable for that player. He has to throw hot off of that player. However, what a lot of teams have been doing as well is sending one less, but that that extra player who is one less than the the people in to pass protect, he is coming free, like the protection sliding away from him and he's coming free. So they're they're still sending just the four stock rushers, but because of what they've shown pre-snap, the protection's gone away from him and 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 he's come free. Now that's not un- a unique issue to the Seahawks, but it's something which Russell Wilson has to punish by throwing hot. And it comes back to when Pete Carroll said, you know, we had opportunities to throw hot and we didn't. Uh, you know, there was a couple of times where we need to get bit rid of the ball a lot quicker. You know, it, it, it does come back to that. But also, they do need to adapt better by throwing more screens. They didn't do that last game. They have done in the past. I think against uh, the Rams, they just opted to try more of their different quick game concepts. They went under center a bit more. I do think they tried to adjust in that sense, but it's very difficult to call plays when your quarterback's not seeing the hot route because you know the whole the whole play design is schemed around him exploiting. The, the rusher coming and then hitting the free man. That otherwise, you just keep the running back in, right? And he'd pick up that free man. But they, 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 they weren't doing that. And Russell wasn't able to beat the Blitz for whatever reason. You know, we've, we've talked about him being off and all the weird environment and, and whatnot. But, but also, I'm sorry. Quite a few occasions when Nick Ballor was in, uh, once Travis Homer uh, presumably got, got banged up at some point, Nick Ballor was in. And I mean, it just kind of felt like the most obvious tell that he was just going to stick in. Uh, and, and pass protect as opposed to you know, maybe split out and, and be available on the hot route. Maybe. I mean, he did. He uh, had that nice catch against. Ooh, who was it? 
The, the 49ers, yeah. Yeah, he, he got a first down catch uh, on, on the check down. But yeah, he, I mean, he's clearly a passing down back. But I think that, that brings up another issue that, you know, the Seahawks, they are probably a bit too obvious that they're passing. And to, like, I'm fine with this whole, like, uh, keep passing, keep passing thing. But they sort of approached that whole, I think part of the reason it felt like that game was falling away from them, they were never going to do it, was they approached the whole second half, even when they're trailing by a bit, as though they were being blown out and we've said it felt like a blowout but the defense managed to come back into the game and the offense was like essentially in like no huddle or like they're just like they forgot about the run uh so defenses weren't able to you know they weren't able to keep the defense honest they weren't able to um face blitzes which were gap sound you know los angeles got more exotic with it and they didn't have to respect a certain type of like run. And so, you know, obviously they got more heat from that. Like they sort they sort of approached the whole second half like it was a disaster and they were just they were having to they were like you know, three scores down or whatever. So that's another issue. Speaking of respect, um obviously the the Metcalf thing is something that's worth, you know, spending a couple of minutes on. I mean, even Troy Aikman was getting frustrated that they weren't throwing to him, and I think he was probably echoing the sentiments of every Seahawks fan watching the game. I mean, Jalen Ramsey is obviously a terrific cornerback, but if I was going to group him in with, you know, other cornerbacks, he'd be kind of a souped up Marcus Peters in the sense that he's a playmaker, but it's probably going to give you something uh, every now and again. I mean, Metcalf did burn him on the outside. Penny Hart drew the pass interception. And it felt to me a bit like they were showing Jalen Ramsey, Richard Sherman level of respect, which is probably slightly over the top. You go first, you then Matty can answer after you, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, it's exactly what it was. I think we saw what six years of watching Sherman on our right side of uh, secondary looked like for opposing teams. But as you say, even Ryan Fitzpatrick threw on Richard Sherman and got burnt, but Fitzpatrick threw on Sherman. And it's just, it was, yeah. I mean, I th- I, it was interesting to watch DK react. It's the first time. I mean, obviously his stars ascended at a ridiculous rate this season already, but it's the first time we've, we kind of saw that, uh, yeah, the frustration come out. Because obviously we didn't really see it last year because he was a rookie and he was kind of, he, he, he wasn't as a big a part, he wasn't as big of a storyline as he is at the minute. But his reactions, especially a couple of times when he, when he beat Jalen deep and the ball just wasn't there when he turned around. It was interesting from DK more than anything, I think. But I mean, Jalen Ramsey is the best cornerback in the game. I think he's so so good. He, but I, I think I think they clearly thought that the rest of the secondary for the Rams wasn't up to that level, which is kind of what how teams try to attack those Sherman year Seahawks, didn't they, Matty? Yeah, uh, they. It was a Richard Sherman level of respect, and I think you know Jalen Ramsey deserves that. But at the same time. I didn't ever expect to see Seattle in this current guise of the offense to just avoid a side or avoid a cornerback. And, you know, perhaps they weren't doing that intentionally. They they did say how, like, they managed to get underneath certain things in zone where Metcalf was the primary option. But it was weird. And they, you know, I, th- I still feel they could have been a bit more aggressive. Like, I mean, I, I already said they could have thrown, like, a wide receiver screen with him off or, like, the, the little smoke route that they do just for Yak and let him run... Jalen Ramsey over didn't do that, and it was just they were just ter- they were calling plays terrified of him, like they were worried he was going to jump the route or whatnot. Um, and yeah, Metcalf was frustrated. They tried that switching sides thing, which the the broadcast did a really good job of um, uh, 
of highlighting where like pre-snap Lockett and, and Metcalf like switched late so that Ramsey like if you know and it stopped Ramsey from traveling as much but also I think what uh, you know I said how the Rams did a good job taking away like routes uh, to Metcalf as, in addition to Ramsey being on that side they used like their safety I think over the top of him a bit they showed two high looks and then and then came down so to Wilson it looked like a double coverage even though it wasn't like a pure bracket like man to man like two men on him but more like a zone and then a zone inside of him like deep like just preventing all the deep shots and and then in that instance that's where you need to be able to run the ball more effectively and if you're going to abandon the run like they did in the, in the second half then you're going to encounter more issues because then they're going to be like well you're not going to run the ball so we can exchange a, a run defender for a, a player who's actually going to play high and be focused on Metcalf in addition to Ramsey so it's another issue of their their sort of second half play calling. Yeah, because what they use it a couple of times. So there's the big, I think it was the third down to going Olsen and Aitman and Buck pointed out that it was it was opened up by Jaden by them creating a creating a hole for Olsen to go because Jaden was uh, tracking with DK because it clearly worked on occasion, just didn't work in the way that, as we said, just to get number 14 involved uh, on the run game usage was something which has been a bit of a thing since Carson went down I mean I don't understand uh, like I, mean, I think Pete said that Alex Collins last week didn't practice on Thursday and Friday and then was the lead back for the entire first round I mean again that's another that's just another case of the coaches or whatever trusting their guy who was here before but it was come off the street over your two draft picks that may be injured or uh, uh, or DJ does incredibly raw at them. Yeah, I mean, for me, the the Alex Collins playing as much as he did and, you know, doing okay, had a nice run for the touchdown. But for me, it kind of felt like the player embodiment of them not going for it on that fourth and inches. It was just so excessively safe. I mean, I thought Dallas, we mentioned it, I, th- I thought Dallas ran pretty hard against Buffalo and had a couple of nice explosive plays. And, you know, he may- maybe had a couple of little rookie you know, mishaps, but I thought he was slightly harshly dealt with um, versus Collins, who... I don't know. I mean, I don't know what you think, Matty, but I mean, Collins is just such a, he just, just such a nothing to me. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, there's a reason Adam that Collins was available and yeah. it's not just his off the field troubles, but like, yeah, he, he is such a sort of jag or whatever, but you know, he can, he can run fairly hard. He, but what it comes down to for me, and you, you talked about the rookie mishaps with Dallas, but he had like one or two like straight up assignment busts, which I think rightly or wrongly, the coaching staff places greater emphasis on than, you know, the natural talent, which is obvious of Dallas. Um, in addition to him, like busting a few assignments, potentially costing the team in negative yardage. And, uh, he, you know, his pass protection has been a bit patchy as well. And um, yeah, it just comes down to Collins just being familiar with the system, just being an NFL vet who can probably do it all. Uh, and Dallas also needs to sort of get up to speed with there's certain creases where he he didn't press it long enough, like press the double team long enough to then access the cutback lane. So sort of he turned a, what could have been an eight yard gain and what Carson would have got maybe 10 yards on. Um, and that's the standard for the Seahawks. Uh, you know, he turned that into like two yards or one yard. It, so 
whether Alex Collins is a guy to access that, I, I'm not sure. So again, it probably just comes down to inexperience. And then Homer's like Homer's Homer. Like he can't. He's not a very good runner at all. Like he'll he'll get you purely what's being blocked, but he can't run through anyone. Um, that being said, he's a very good pass protector. But I do think he's playing quite hurt right now. Yeah, uh, DJ Dallas had two carries for eight yards and two catches for twenty three. Which is yeah, he just very. To be fair, I was surprised when I read just to eight yards, although he flashed more than that. Uh, one more thing on offense before we turn on to the defense, more a long-term, well, longer-term view on things. Um, I, I, I tweeted and texted Mike Dugar yesterday saying that the biggest uh, thing for this Seahawk and their outlook for 2021 isn't isn't a decision they have to make. It's what ever Dwayne Brown decides to do because he, he is playing at a remarkable level, but he's 36 um, pretty beat up. I mean, he's on the injury report every week with different ailments and reasons for vet rest and stuff like that. I mean, is am I on the right track with whatever? If Dwayne Brown stays, then the moves that his team made with Jamal and the lack of draft picks on there uh, as a result of that kind of aren't as felt as greatly if you don't have to go out and find a new left tackle and and rely on the, the Reese or the Ambos of the world. Stuart, I was going to say that they should take one in the first round next year and then you reminded me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, Dwayne Brown, wow, he's having a great season. Um, and yeah, like you said, he's getting banged up and it, it all kind of falls apart, especially the whole, the you know, the past-centric approach. That all collapses if you don't have that left tackle and he's probably playing like one of the best in the league right now. Um, just seeing his interactions with Russell Wilson, I think it was the Vikings game where there's they had a mic'd up segment and he just straight up told Russell Wilson to like a, a slide behind him, like and just little tweaks like that where Wilson has stepped up and sacked himself. And he's like sort of such a veteran presence that he will tell Russell like, you know, that wasn't right. Like you need to, you need to be better at that, but also such a good run blocker, especially on those toss plays where he just can surge outside, whether they decide to pull him or if he just is climbing uh, heavily outside and just get on to second level players, which is, just such great athleticism and yeah a bit of a concern if he you know if this is his last year if they won a Super Bowl like you could easily uh, with the pain he's playing for you probably like it would be the perfect way for him to retire mm. at the same time if that were to happen they'd, they'd be in big trouble yeah I mean, because yeah, there's not many David Bakhtiaris in the, in the world, are there, mate? <laughs> You're not going to get many fifth round hundred million dollar left tackles, are you? No no, you're not. Um, that being said, um, <laughs> I'm sure they'll try. <laughs> Damien, Damien Lewis was a good right guard uh-huh. pick and Brandon Shell, they found value there at the other tackle spot, but left tackle's a, a whole different uh, picture. But but also, it, it's a different... I was thinking with um, the Dolphins, obviously, Tua being left-handed, that's a completely different thing. Like The, the left tackle's important if you've got a right-handed quarterback, isn't it? It's mm. the blind side for the... As a, as a, Hollywood film butchered somewhat, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, so just get a left-handed quarterback. That's what we're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The pay, only way is the only pay, way we're going pay, to do it. Pay Brandon Sorry, Russ. and get, exactly. him, get a um, left-handed quarterback. <laughs> Look, if Russ really was the true competitor that you said he was, <laughs> <I'm> left-handed. <laughs> uh, ambi, well, there's uh, ambidextrous pitchers in the uh, Major League Baseball, so. Exactly. He's got the baseball background, so who knows? Um, right, uh, defense. It improved in the second half. Jamal Adams played 
with one arm. There's obviously that somewhat viral clip going around, which seems to miss the fact that his arm's dragged. But it's, I mean, when they show the stat every week and it's 32, and then you realise, oh shit, there's only 32 teams. <laughs> it's not like the 32 in college football when there's like 170 teams. But um, what, uh, like on, on here, we've said for a few weeks, or I've said for a few weeks in this podcast that the biggest thing for me against Ken Norton is that there's no clear player who has improved with his coaching or like Pete Carroll's always talking about we put our players in the position where they're the best of them. I mean, they did that with Bruce Irwin the first time he said like he was all about getting to the pass which so they just let him do that. Um, like the but like with Dan Quinn and you got the Byron Max while they come out of nowhere then went somewhere else and was found out and Gus Bradley and Chris Richard the DBs always improved but Ken Norton just is not that obvious player who's improved I mean obviously you got the Bobby 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 Wagner's Bobby Wagner KJ Wright's KJ Wright Jamal Adams is Jamal Adams Joran Reed is Joran Reed but is that fair that that's arguably the biggest thing because there's no clear improvement on anyone on that defensive end defensive side of the ball Matty uh, I think uh, I think there's a lot of things you can criticise him for that's maybe a bit harsh but then uh, I do see what he's saying like, I've, Jordan Brooks I think like, got up to speed very quickly but I've always said he was a good player the the, the example of Byron Maxwell and the Quinn you know I mean how much of the credit therefore goes you know to the defensive backs coach which I think was Chris Richard at the time mm. um, still not um, with a team at the moment, and then so if you if you're going to do that, then I guess you could credit this year that the main improvements have been Puna Ford, who's obviously a good player, but he's been incredible, and the the fronts that they're running right now, and the way that they're moving the line really suit him. Pete Carroll alluded to that actually, and also Brian Monet, the other nose tackle, um, stopped the run. Um, he's uh, he's been amazing. Uh, he's injured now, obviously on on IR, but before that he got hurt, he's he's. Like I thought he was crap last year. I, I didn't know why he was on the team. He looked fat. He uh, he couldn't run. But this year, he's slimmed down. He's still a massive man. And he's got such good leg churn and, and real ability to like engage the center, fall into the backside A-gap, make tackles for loss, hustle to from the backside A-gap to the frontside C-gap with uh, you know excellent pursuit and desire. Oh, sorry, so, Matty. Just, just for, for idiots like myself, what does that actually mean there? The, uh, just so I can, we can try and visualize it because I'm okay, sure there'll be so, some people saying, what the hell does that mean? And I'm probably Yeah, sorry, sorry. I've been trying not to do weird nerdy stuff. You've so. been doing well. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. We can only hope to contain you, Matty. Don't worry. We can't, <laughs> can't possibly do more than that. He, so either side of the center, there's an A gap. And what Seattle's been doing is they've been lining up then their, uh, one of their defensive tackles head up on the center and then that defensive tackle has been winning to usually the A gap away from where the run is going. Uh, offenses will try and run through gaps, which are created by blockers. So you have like the five offensive linemen. So that's a C gap, a B gap, and a, the A gaps either side of the center, and then the B gap and the C gap on the other side. But then if they were to bring a tight end in or something, that would be an extra gap. So rather than five gaps, there'd be six gaps, and they'd have created what we call a D gap. So when I say Monet's winning to the, the backside A gap, so say teams are going to run outside, you know, to the left, Monet would win to the, the right A gap, come through in the backfield. And then where Seattle, a lot of their fronts are weak is usually the C gap area because they've got a player who's trying to get outside of this run. So he's essentially playing 
the D gap and the run is cutting up into the C gap. But what Monet has been able to do is he's been able to win to the backside A gap. So say that, you know, they're running this left outside play. So he's won to the right and gone through into the backfield and then managed to run all the way left behind the running back and made the tackle as the running back looks to cut up the C gap. So he's won like uh, essentially three gaps over, which is something which a, a man his size shouldn't be doing. And it's also something which has enabled Seattle to play these fronts, which have been very friendly on the linebacker group and also enabled um, guys like uh, Puna Ford, Jaron Reed to benefit from certain alignments usually in the B gaps, the, the two gaps um, next to where the, the center is, um, that one gap over from the A gaps, uh, they've enabled them guys to like get nice pass rushing looks and also like play some games and move around and be harder to block for teams. So, But it all stems from the nose tackle play, which has been forward, but also Monet. And that, like circling it all the way back around, that's something that I, you know, those are players that have improved under Ken Norton in addition to... Uh, to Jordan Brooks but then again it's it's hard to attribute success in the NFL to coaches when there's so much talent but also yeah there isn't like a like an, a true like I agree with you Stuart there's no like where's like the day three development um and then that also does come back to drafting as well it's like like the defensive back they can't draft defensive backs it's so weird hence the Adams trade but like I don't know like but it's it's also like Trey Flowers obviously is a development guy because he was a safety mm. in college. Mm. He was a fifth round pick. Who's I mean, like, but like he's he up until maybe the last two weeks, he looked completely. He looked like he was on the fast track out to play mm. for the the Calgary Stampeders next year. It was it kind of like it was so weird because like, it, like as Adam can attest, he was one of my favorite players to watch the early part of last year and then it just completely I think he's the biggest my biggest like Jerome I'm going to beat with Ken Norton hasn't really improved anyone because he just he was completely devoid of he just seemed to be like one of those like you know like the outside the car showrooms you've got like the, the the floppy men with like the air going up on he was kind of just like one of them at one of our cornerback positions I think he is the biggest one because he, he looked like a legitimate um player and then he just looked like yeah like I said he just he was on in fact I think he's the biggest reason but I don't know I don't want you think with Trey Flowers in particular Matty but yeah uh I, yeah I loved him as well uh, I think he's the sort of corner who probably just needs like a sideline and I'd argue like he's obviously his confidence was gone and again like Ken isn't Ken Norton wouldn't be coaching him directly as the defensive coordinator no. and he's a DB and Ken's background in linebackers but like the play calling and maybe this is a segue but the play calling doesn't help him because he need he need or hasn't helped him he needs a sideline um and when you ask him to move over in man coverage he can't do that because out in space like if if they're asking him to go like into the slot and more inside and, and and match up with someone there like this is a disaster and always has been but you know if he if he's on like just playing that uh typical uh right cornerback role and, and he's got the sideline as his extra defender he's got the help of a deep safety in the middle of the field and he's got an outside underneath defender you know he could be okay but then he's unable to he's unable to like press people in that situation he he's keeps getting roasted so then they've started blitzing to try and improve his 
like you know lessen the time he has to cover for so he can and that's helped him a bit like and as his confidence has come back he started cheating more I don't think it's over for him like um obviously they need him and Quinton Dunbar is dealing with this chronic knee issue and it was his arrival which really just seemed to shatter uh, Flowers' confidence so this is sort of his his last chance and uh hopefully he can take it with there has been noticeable improvement but yeah he's he's still still he's still got the limitations that but they need to keep trying to help him out with the pressures which is what pete's talked about on a general level when it comes to defensive uh you know the, the way the team stands defensively um the, the Seahawks will always be in a Super Bowl window as long as Russell Wilson is their quarterback. I think we can probably agree that, you know, they will go as far as he can take them. But when I look at this team, you know, that, let's call this the, the Chris Carson, the Shaq Griffin, the Dwayne Brown, the Bobby Wagner team outside of Russell Wilson. The, the, the trade they made for Jamal Adams and the amount they gave up to get him, it would suggest to me that this season is probably the last window of that iteration of the team. I think it's going to be quite difficult um, for them to to rebound and add what they need to do going into next year as an offense on the whole. But defensively, where does this team stand next year? Because it strikes me that there's going to be quite a few things they need to change, but not necessarily an awful lot of capital, both draft and financially, to do that. Oh, well, that's an that's a. I honestly believe that they think that they can sort of just do what they want on defense. Like they they have a probably arrogant faith in their ability to develop defensive players, which uh, since whenever they had all that talent and the Legion of Boom and oh my gosh, the defensive line and the defensive front was stacked as well. People that's sometimes overlooked, but like it's now since that point they haven't really been able to draft any good defensive players um and really like i always look at coming back to the db room trey flowers was obvious right he was really long it was it was fun because it was a conversion that wow that's seahawky and he was quite aggressive in college he was really raw but he ran so fast for a man his size and uh he, he looked like he was an obvious cornerback fit but the safety group they drafted ugo um and they said he was a free safety coming out. They said he was a free safety, and that was weird. Uh, it was like, well, you know, L. Thomas, like, you need to replace him, and you've drafted this guy to be a free safety. That's unusual. And uh, then I was like, okay, he's probably just a special teamer. Well, now he's the the nickel player. They've neglected that since um, Coleman left. Um, Marquise Blair drafted to be a strong safety they thought they literally said he can run and hit they drafted him for traits um speed and and hitting ability but he was so raw but like, i get why the the athletic profile and the the uh, the mental toughness and abil- ability to just hit fearlessness on the field i get why that made him a second rounder but he had no obvious fit in seattle none like it it was going to be a project it was always going to be one he finally sort of carved out a nickel roll, but his arms are too short for that, really. He couldn't press. So I, I, I didn't get that either. Uh, Leno Hill, he was like just sort of a weird chess piece. Like they, they, they don't seem to, like at a certain point, you can't keep trying to do like sort of later round picks. Um, you have to take like a first or second round player and their, their second round player was Marquise Blair. So I don't, which was really not obvious, very questionable fit. And so they, they managed to get Quandy Dix, who's an incredible player, and they managed to get um, 
Jamal Adams, who they gave up a ton for, um, and now they, like, in terms of rebuilding the defense, I think Cody Barton could still become, like, a, the future of um, Mike or Will, depending on where they want to play him, a, a inside linebacker. And I do think Jordan Brooks is going to be very special. That's one defensive player who I've been like, oh, that fits obvious. He's 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 really really good. And they've they like they've managed to sort of bullshit their way around the defensive tackle position into actually having a really good group, but. Uh, yeah, the, the the issue, and it, it was the issue last year, is that the secondary, and I don't know how, you know, everyone knows that length is desirable now. Everyone knows that, oh, maybe playing press single high coverage is like a good idea, but they don't they don't have the assets, I think, to, to now get that because everyone's looking for that sort of thing. And I'm not even sure they'd spend the assets on that, which is a whole separate issue. Um <laughs> Maybe the pass rush gets to a stage where they don't actually need um, they don't need that good corner guys, but that's not really, I think, how the NFL works anymore. And I don't think Seattle, you know, what have we seen, seen from the pass rush? Like Daryl Taylor, it all kind of pins on him. So uh, complicated question. Um, I'd be interested to hear what Stuart thinks. I was just, I was just, uh, <clears throat> just listening to every syllable you were saying. Then I was, I mean, that's that's as damning as a drafting I think I've ever I've heard on the Seahawks. It it just seems it just doesn't seem to be. They they just kind of kept expecting to find Richard Sherman and Cam Chancellor without realizing that the reason those two are so good is because you don't find them every you know, ever again, really, do you? Because there's one thing I noticed particularly on Sunday when it was DJ Reed in for Dunbar and Shaq on that side is it's really small back there. Like, I mean, Trey Fowles is long and he, he looks, but he, he, he just seems to be playing small. And you got DJ Reed, I don't know what, he's six foot maybe, if that. And Quandre and Jamal obviously aren't very tall when Jamal is actually playing as a safety and not uh, a linebacker. But it, it just, that, that's it, that's like the first time I've gone, oh, oh yeah, we haven't got like, those those statuesque phenoms in the, the defensive backfield anymore, and it just kind of like also on that, and on especially on Marquis Blair is a couple of years ago. This the team lost um, Ed Dodds, didn't they, to the Colts? Um, and then obviously they draft a Utah defensive back in Blackman this year, and he's just making plays every week. And that defense is one of the more unheralded in the league. And it, I mean. Obviously, it's not be giving all the credit to Ed Dodds, but this team has lost people in those positions, haven't they? Obviously, Kirchner and uh, the other one who's Schneider's right arm. Fitterer. Fitterer, yeah. <laughs> He's still here, but they have lost other people. It just kind of seen that when they've left, they've kind of took like the recipe, the, the cookbook with, with them somewhat. And Dodds is the biggest example I can see just for the impact he's having with Ballard and particularly on that defence, mate. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, well, I think the whole drain, you know, is natural with like such success. Um, yeah. You know, or everyone would go back to Scott McLuhan as well, and you know how how he's missed in the front office. Uh, I think you can say there's definitely been a coaching drain as well. Like, look at what like Rocky Cito he went on to do that the USA Football Heads Up Tackling Program. Um, it now uh, just a pastor, I think, uh, not not in coaching anymore, but clearly massively influential. Uh, Dan Quinn, uh, you know, went on to coach to a Super Bowl, uh, Chris Richard, clearly really highly respected. And, you know, he was the DB coach. Like, I don't think you can overlook that. 
you know, they've lost a lot of coaches too, as well as front office and, um, you know, evaluation people. Uh, yeah, that Utah defense, like <laughs> they, they're really good at man-to-man stuff. But like with like Julian Blackman, like he had a more obvious fit. Like everyone knew like he was going to play that, that role. And I just, I can't believe that last year, what was the issue last year against Green Bay where they couldn't get off the field on third down? Why couldn't they get off the field on third down? Well, the pass rush was an issue. But they couldn't, they couldn't cover man to man. What's the issue this year? Ultimately, they can't get off the field in third down, and they can't cover in man to man. Even on that KJ Wright overthrow, they can't cover on man to man. They don't have the pieces to match up. Adams can't play man to man. He's very good in zone coverage, but you know when you start, as we saw against Buffalo, if you start asking him to man up with Stefan Diggs, he can't do it. Now, not many safeties in the league could do that, but it's just a. You know, they don't have the nickel group to match up in man-to-man. DJ Reed got beat uh, a few times against Kendrick Bourne against the, the 49ers. They, they, they don't have any coverage pieces you can, can uh, get it done reliably. So, and they, and they've, you know, it was an issue last year, it was an issue this year. They didn't draft a corner or a nickel in the draft. There was the guy, I thought, Lejarius Sneed, who's starting for the Kansas City Chiefs. He was long, he was quick, he was a day three pick. Didn't even attempt to upgrade that. So... Yeah, and then now they're without the assets and they're in a spot because they don't have any coverage. That I don't like. Who's the next coverage guy on the roster? Who's the developmental person? Um, the Dunbar trade probably, you know, that that looked great. And then obviously, he had a shortened off season to, you know, different <laughs> circumstances. <laughs> yeah, and then. Um, uh, so you know they they kept, and then he's got this chronic knee thing, and he looked like a great addition. I have to say, uh, he wasn't really Seahawk in the sense he's not, you know, he's still long, but he didn't. He was more an, an off cover guy, but he was so good at root anticipation, and I thought they'd finally got that ball hawk that they're missing on the back end. Uh, but no, <laughs> now now I don't know how you know what are they going to do next year? Draft a, a fifth rounder who's like likely a toss up. Like, don't get me wrong, Sneed had. Um, certain things which would make him like not a, a nailed on guy to succeed but like they just don't value uh, or they're I think it comes down to again they have too much faith in their own ability to coach people up and maybe weight pass rush too heavily over over the coverage which is it sounds perverse given that they gave up so much for Jamal Adams but then actually Jamal Adams is more of their pass rushing guy their answer to their pass rush pass rush problems than he is a, a cover guy even though I think he's he's excellent in underneath zones but uh, Adam was that do, do you have much to say on well I was going to say to keep it nice and cheery um, <laughs> we've got a bit of an offense coming to town on Thursday night that we may have kind of keep it general but sort of transcend into the into a preview of, of Arizona um, whenever there's you know a dominant team in a division you always hear how teams try and draft in order to combat uh, that dominant force, you know, teams in the in the uh, AFC East have been trying for years to to you know pick up players to combat the Patriots, and it's never really worked. But here we are. And one thing that I have noticed uh, in the last two games, especially, is just a general lack of real speed on the defensive side of the ball. Um, and we're probably in the worst division for that to to be the case. And you know, I'm looking at. You know, this is probably a far too generic and too reductive um, to be seen as like a, a real point. But something we discussed with Alistair Corp uh, on the show last week is that when you're playing against someone like Kyler Murray, getting as much speed there as you know in the front seven in the team as possible should be a priority. And is there an idea that you know the amount 
of pass rushing and almost linebacker play that Jamal Adams has been doing so far, that you go into that game with your 4-3, but with Brooks and Adams outside of Wagner to try and get that sideline to sideline speed up. Because if not, you just won't worry what, what Murray's going to do to that team, given how slow they looked, especially against Buffalo. Definitely. That's... <laughs> find a way to play Jordan Brooks for 100% of the snaps. When they drafted him, all they spoke about, well, not all they spoke about, most of what they spoke about was team speed. They've built a scheme which is, well, in theory, on paper, designed to stop the NFC West. They uh, drafted Daryl Taylor, who was a speed rusher. Obviously, they his medical or whatever, the physical, whatever happened, they didn't get that quite right. Um, his recovery <laughs> hasn't gone as well. <laughs> they didn't get that quite right. <laughs> um, why did I break up? No, I was no, saying no, no, no. you can say that again. Like bloody right, they didn't get it right. Oh, oh I got you. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then they they got Bruce Irvin and like more speed. Uh, Shaquem Griffin's like that sort of chess piece who is fast. And um, they did try and add more speed, but how many years have we said, hmm, the Seahawks aren't fast enough? Hmm. The Seahawks aren't fun. It's been going on since, uh, well, m- multiple seasons uh, that they, they just lack team speed. And they've tried to add it this year. Uh, even um, even Marquise Blair, like, you know, he's fast um, and he can hit, whereas he's, you know. And so they did have the pieces. They've slowly got injured. And the only one remaining, well, the only two remaining are um, Shaquem, who, uh, you know, he's a, he's a liability against the run. That's it is what it is. Like there's there's a reason why he, you know, they played him on early downs against Arizona, but then uh, Seattle got caught in fronts where they were trying to use him as like a, a spinner or like the fourth rusher in in like pass fronts. And our, like Ken Norton had a meltdown in like the last like 52 seconds of that game, and then into overtime where he got caught in a oh they they need a touchdown to win. Well, no, they needed a field goal to win. So why are we? Why are we just giving them the box and like letting them run for whatever many yards? Anyway, um, this year, this time round, obviously Adams, he's he's not as fast, but he's a very good blitzer. So maybe the plan is to like flush him, uh, you know, use him and Brooks as blitzers. But like I said, it comes down to Brooks has to be on the field. Bobby Wagner's got a lot slower. His lateral agility's gone. His athleticism's gone. He's much more of a. He has to be much more of a cerebral player to be as dominant. And then next to him is KJ Wright, who's the example of that. He is like not a, like the best of athletes. He looks very slow at times, but he must have spent so much time just, uh, you know, fine-tuning his footwork because he's so um, he he's it's all just optimal with him. He's ne- he's never like false steps or makes a wrong step. Although the last two games he's looked a bit slower, but in general, he's playing with such a high IQ that. He's always in the right spot. So, you know, but if it's those two players and then Ugo at nickel, like I'd rather have Jordan Brooks there because Jordan Brooks is just as fast as Ugo, but bigger, stronger, and a linebacker who diagnoses the run superbly. Uh, if I was Arizona, I'd just come out in those that full wide receiver stuff, force Seattle into nickel, break Ken Norton Jr. and and you know, jobs are good like, and, and I think that's what we'll see so they don't really unless they're bold uh, and maybe they do like three linebackers uh, three defensive linemen which we've seen over the, the last few weeks but that probably gets run on um, but I, I don't really see how they get speed on the field unless, unless they change how they view their linebacker group and actually let Jordan Brooks play 
the 100% of snaps that he's actually earned so far. He's been really impressive when he's been on the field. It's just he's got Wagner and right ahead of him, which is, I think, when he was drafted, everyone was saying, how is he going to play? And I was like, oh, no, they'll go to 4-3 a bit more, but they haven't. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think Brooks made one of the starriest plays on Sunday. We had the he had the the rarity in Seahawks defensive play. We had a pass breakup on <laughs> um, on Sunday as well uh, over the middle. Well, two, a few more things before I get on to Arizona. Um, KJ Wright covering a tight end in the year twenty twenty is just twenty twenty. Mm. And um, the on DBs in the draft, I really want them to draft Madre Harper. As everyone listens to his podcast knows, Michael Ojemudia is the other one who is just unbelievable for the Broncos in his rookie year so sometimes Adam I do know what I'm talking about as well um, but on Arizona um, I think this, the, the biggest worrying part of this is that they broke the code three weeks ago didn't they Adam um, sorry in, in what sense like they got after the us they broke the offense that second half was atrocious they did it with no cast and it's probably going to be exactly the same on Sunday because there's doesn't seem that Carson's going to be back in time. Yeah, I mean, Carlos Hyde coming back is, well, I don't know, you you tell me how excited <laughs> you are about that prospect. Um, better than Alex Collins, I suppose, yeah. is, is one way you could put it. Um, you know, Hyde's done a decent job. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you, we all went into the last week thinking we probably really need to go one-on-one against the Rams and the Cardinals. Uh, and now with the Cardinals being almost a must-win game, I'm kind of pretty down in the dumps about it, to be honest, because mm. especially with no fans there to, you know, maybe shift the momentum with, you know, maybe it's a, a windy night or rainy night and Kyle has a couple of fumbles and Cliff Averill and Michael Bennett are in the backfield and the fans are going crazy. Yeah, I, I just can't really see how they're going to be able to do this against an offense that, that Kyler Murray has been running um, this season where they just look so dynamic and so explosive and have an answer for, for so many of the things that, we're likely to throw at them. Um, I mean, what's your optimism level going into this, Matty? Because uh, if I'm going to be up till five in the morning, uh, I'd rather not watch us get pumped, to be honest. <laughs> um, the optimism is mm, not great. Uh, one thing I'd say is it's, they're not idiots. Like their, their defensive scheme is like smart. They're essentially doing what college teams did to Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury. Uh, obviously they weren't together but they were running like um, similar kind of uh, spread systems although Kingsbury far more spread but you know they're, they're, they're running basically what is the tight front uh, like a, a guy who's just inside of the tackle um, then a head up nose tackle and then a guy just inside of the tackle so they're taking away all of those interior gaps that I spoke about for running plays and enables them to have more coverage-focused players, essentially, with just three defensive linemen. So they're doing smart things in that sense, but Ken Norton gets caught up in a, an issue where he, rather than calling like an overall defense, he sort of almost makes his way down a play sheet of, okay, we're going to do a series of zone pressure from this certain front. Okay, we're going to do a series of man pressure from this certain front. There's no, okay, we'll take something from this front, we'll run it this play, then this play, we'll, we'll do this, we're going we're gonna to bluff this and then, and then back off into, into this from, from this front. It's all the same front, the same concept, or like the same play type on, on one drive. And, and by the end of the drive, and I think this kind of explains how Seattle's given up like 
I think inside when a team starts inside their 10 yard line, they've scored a touchdown on 70% of plays. But when a team is like uh, starting from like the normal spot, 25 yard line, they're, they've given up a touchdown on 50% of the plays. So like uh, with an offensive coordinator gets more time to see what Seattle's doing and Seattle's just not changing much. They're just like, okay, well, yep, yep, yep. We'll just keep hitting our, we'll go to our man beaters. Um, for instance, so like optimism-wise, yeah, it's uh, it, it's going to be tough. I think the the offense it, it's a really good chance for them to prove that their you know last week was a fluke, and also that okay, you pressured us last time, but this time we're gonna and maybe by running it a bit more um, and just staying like keeping them honest by by running it a tiny bit more, and Carlos Hyde gives them the confidence to do that. Maybe that. You know, we see less nasty pressures from the from the Cardinals, and the the way they play coverage is like perfect for Russell Wilson to beat. Like it's the sort of stuff that he loves, and we did see that last time round. They just like in an uncharacteristic fashion, the Seahawks just choked it away, and their execution on defense was crap. And then, you know, Ken had his Ken Norton had his meltdown. So uh, yeah, Stuart, are you, are you optimistic or am, no? Am I, no. I would- <laughs> We're see we're seeing over here with um Sky Sports with no fans moving games on like four hour notice. I wish the NFL would do this on Sunday with no fans in the stadium. Just bring it forward, just make it like nine o'clock. We could all go to bed at a relatively normal time. <laughs> Have a functioning Friday. And I mean the fact the next two games are <clears throat> prime time obviously Eagles is different, but we still gotta watch the Eagles on Monday night football. Um no I'm not. I don't I don't see. I mean, I think me, me and you, Adam, spent a, a, before we played Arizona a few weeks talking about how ludicrously fun Kyler Murray is, and then he has, with obviously a massive assist to probably the best receiver in the league, and Nook Hopkins on Sunday has the play of the season uh, in that end zone on the Hale Murray, which Mike Tirico. Uh, dubbed brilliantly in proving why Mike Tirico should be in the box on Sunday night, not in the studio in New York. But um, no, I don't think we're. I mean, it's a pretty big game. I think someone, I think someone's posted that the Seahawks' strength of schedule is third in the NFC West, and then the Rams and the Cardinals play each other twice. So if the city, if we can win on Sunday, it's going to be a large one. And if we lose, it's not in the world because obviously gonna, they're going to kick seven sorts of uh, dust out of each other in those two games. But I just don't see any which way that they can stop Kyler and Nock. I mean, Christian Kirk is kind of finally beginning to turn that corner and look like he did at A&M as well. He's the deep guy, which is ridiculous. We got Nook Hopkins on the other side of him as well. Kyler getting the ball to on both of them. I mean, I think saw someone say that they threw a screen to Larry Fitzgerald on Sunday and we're not throwing one to Tyler Lockett, David Moore and uh, the gazelle that is uh, DK Metcalf. It's just, and then offensively, I mean, it's Carlos Hyde. He's on his eighth team in seven months. And I think we're starting to realise one of the reasons why teams don't aren't that keen on keeping around because he just can't stay healthy. And uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, Shaquille Griffin is probably going to be out Postage is probably going to be out. Uh, if you're still listening to this podcast, we're going to try and make it cheery in a few minutes, but uh, oh, God, the, the thought of staying up to quarter to five in the morning 
because I know I'm going to. Watching this game is just, yeah, I'm not looking forward to it. The, the, the injury thing is is interesting um, because the glass half full person, uh, and let's try and add a, a bit of a positivity you know, before we uh, pick the game. Um, you know, the, I mean, I mean like, in, in lockdown and things like that, like it's the nights are obviously getting dark at four o'clock in the, mo- uh, the afternoon. The rain's coming. It's bitterly cold in most parts of the country. People are struggling. They like not leaving the houses in quarantine or lockdown or isolation. Oh, I'm gonna, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my favourite Seahawks podcast on. <laughs> <laughs> An hour and ten minutes in, and they're just I don't know. Just just okay, go well, listen, well, I'll, just, just, I'll, just, I'll, just, just go listen to I'll, sports by Katie Nolan and just have a proper. Proper, I'll uh, really break rank, and I'll be—I'll I'll offer the, the optimist point of view. I must say, we did have a load of really good comments that came in uh, when we were asking for like one sentence review of the season. We run quite late on this one, so maybe Stu, we can uh, pod again on Friday, go through the Cardinals game before this kind of semi-buy, and we can go through people's roundup of the week uh, of, the, of the season so far. Otherwise, we'll, we'll be here for two, three hours, and oh, well, we can be done now if you want. No, I don't think anyone, including us, wants to be be talk about this rabble for three hours. Okay, um, but yeah, the optimist <laughs> might suggest that you know Quinton Dunbar and Shaq Griffin are coming back at some point, and the starting secondary that you thought you'd have at the start of the season have played about three quarters together. Um, the linebacker crew, when healthy, not too bad. Um, Benson Mayo will be back at some point. Chris Carson will be back at some point. Carlos Hyde, you know, will be a complimentary player at some point. You've got Russell Wilson and you've got three at least pretty good um, receivers at least and a decent offensive line. Matty, is there something we can take you know, <laughs> team and think, well, you know, we thought we might... It's like it Keegan in 95. <laughs> we, we have, a month ago, we thought we might be a Super Bowl team. Is there anything left in this roster that could suggest we could still be there? Because I need something to cling on to. Yes, of course. Russell Wilson Come on. back. When was the last time Russell Wilson was had ke- back-to-back was, awful games? That was Keegan in 95, that was. That was amazing. Yeah, that was a proper <laughs> Keegan. Go, go on, Matty. Give us some positivity. What can we cling on to? I'd love it. Um, <laughs> yeah, they are... They're, they're, they're good. They're still good. They're not... They're just... They're, they're flawed. Like, I think you covered the optimism where they've got guys to come back... They they've added Carlos Dunlap and then Benson Mayo was going to be there as well. Like this, they're still throwing crap at a wall on the defense and seeing if anything sticks, which it hasn't really so far. But you know that second half against the Rams, maybe they got a bit lucky, but that's like a real building spot for them. Of hey, when we execute, we're actually like we stopped the Rams. Like they only scored one touchdown in the second half, so that, you know that's good. And uh, yeah, they're. They've got like Russell Wilson at quarterback. When was the last time he had back-to-back really bad games? Like uh, never, um, actually. Well, really. Last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but but like okay, three games in a row. Three has never happened. It never happened. Never. And t- he he's a, an incredible player. Their play calling schemes are really good. Uh, they've got great wide receivers. The offense can get back to being right. And this has been a really good learning moment for them too, because they've had stuff thrown at them. They've been unable to come up with suitable answers. So it's, it's sort of a a good like recalibration spot for them. And they, like I said, like they have like good ideas schematically, uh, even on the defense for stopping what Arizona does, they just need to sort of uh, change their play calling up a bit and, and improve that. And I, I still like, you know, I guess we'll come on to a prediction spot. But I still think they'll, 
they'll come out with a win. But yeah, I'm just just yeah. Anyway, Stuart. Uh, yeah, I yeah no that was that was much better. That was much more um um <clears throat> just uh, smoking the, the our own product kind of there. Wasn't it? Um, <laughs> it was uh, yeah. I just like it's it's everything is with like at some point. That's what was making me laugh when Adam was going through all those players. At some point they're gonna come back. At some point they're gonna prove but like mm-hmm. like you said, Matty, they're, they're gonna be in every game they play. It may not feel like it all the time. They are gonna be in most games they play because of the guy uh, throwing the ball, hopefully to the correct players and, and uh yeah. Because Russell Wilson's the best quarterback in the division. He's Arguably the best quarterback in the in the conference, and he's definitely in the top two or three in the entire league as well. So, like, that's a massive plus when everything is kind of downbeat and downcast and not looking great. And it is probably one reason we're all going to stay up till quarter to five in the morning watching this team four days after what we watched on Sunday because we get to watch one of the best in the business do what he does. And the Seahawks have not lost three straight games since 2009 uh, I think maybe 2000, no, 2009 it, Russell Wilson's never lost more than two though she has that ridiculous record which was like I think it's 38 and 6 after uh, defeats now after one on Sunday and um, and also the Seahawks are really good in November and December as well and then we said that two weeks ago and they lost the two games since so I mean there is the, the biggest reason for optimism is the quarterback but the, there is um, reasons for pessimism. So, Adam, we gonna go predictions. But also, yeah. what's your wild? What's something that is gonna like annoy fancy football owners or be a weird viral moment on Sunday, uh, Thursday? A weird viral. Well, in the to the benefit of kind of trying to keep the show as positive as possible, I'll go against what I actually think might happen uh, in the game. And I'll, I'll predict a glorious 30 to 27 win uh, for your action green clad, disgusting. Oh, that's a good point. They are wearing action green, so they are probably going to win. Uh, yeah, the action green, the worst uniform in all of sport. Uh, action green gang. No, 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 no. Um, 30 to 27. And I will say that your $7 million man, Greg Olson, will score you a touchdown. Um, you might have thought that he would have been commentating the last few weeks and not playing a Seahawks games because he's not really been that evident. But yeah, I'm going to go a, a Greg Olsen touchdown to uh, to take us over the line. Matty, what are you saying? Um, I think Seattle wins 35-21. I Oof. think the defense manages to luck their way into something. But also, I think they stop uh, dropping eight guys into coverage using... Shaquem Griffin as a very sort of preordained, obvious spy. And I think they get after Kyler Murray a bit. Maybe there's a few busted plays in the back end because of that. Um, maybe Kyler manages to make the first blitz a miss, but I think they also get Jordan Brooks on the field more. And then offensively, I think Carlos Hyde, while he's a jag, he's injury prone. There's a reason why it's his whatever amount of team. I think we said eighth team in the NFL or something, whatever. But anyway, but I think that enables them to just feel more comfortable uh, and I think Russell uh, lights them up and they, yeah, they win by two clear touchdowns and score a ton of points. And Action Green's good. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Why there's three people on the podcast. It's uh, <laughs> democracy. I should have stopped the count when you said you're one, Adam. He's one yeah, nil then. Sure. Um, I won this vote, Stuart. I won. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, right. So I, I think it will be 33-20 to the Cardinals. 
Um, oh. But I like just because it's a Seahawks podcast, I'll go 33, 34 to Seahawks. <laughs> I just, Very I don't, I don't see this defense. I mean, there were some plays when they kept going on game breaks to Arizona on Sunday. Like, yeah, we can't stop Kyler doing that. <laughs> we haven't shown any examples of being able to show stop Kyler doing that. But um, and I think. I think it's a big week for DK Metcalf, which is a weird thing because after being shut out by Jalen Ramsey, the first three games against Patrick Peterson, he's got absolutely nothing against him either. So I think it would be nice if he has like a 761 maybe uh, kind of stat line on, on Thursday because like Pete, Patrick Peterson um, is good and he's kept DK quiet through the first three games obviously I'm not sure how it breakdowns how often they're opposite each other but it'd be nice to see especially after Sunday and the chat's kind of as you mentioned earlier lauding uh, Jalen in spite of DK I think it'd be nice if DK has a kind of it's not the wildest take I'll go for wilder take I think DJ Dallas scores a touchdown because D- Team DJD is on this uh, on the ped pod I think uh, Matty um, is anyone bit... slightly worried that the first play of the game is going to be an attempted screen to Metcalf that gets picked off because it's obviously going to be a pass to get Metcalf involved really early on that, that well, then... and if well... I can read it the Cardinals can probably read it as well <laughs> Tyler Lockett as well has a knee injury doesn't he he's got yeah, a mild was... knee sprain so, yeah, so a I... natural so in, in, in our group chat when Pete said that I just went Tyler's injured lol <laughs> it's just like of course he is of course Tolly Lockett's got a knee sprain I mean I mean, fair, I think it was Ben Arthur obviously you see names on injury port on a three day game week you kind of like okay they're just on injury port but Ben Arthur kind of seems to just dig into it and it come out with even more depressing news from Seahawks land on a Monday night um, it's been a bit Adam let's do it right I'll get started one reason I'm kind of one one more reason I'm downbeat on this team is the people who decide what numbers the Seahawks wear have allowed it that Carlos Dunlap is wearing 43 as a defensive end, which should not be allowed. But then on Sunday, defensive tackle Behemoth Damon Sachs Harrison had number 59. <laughs> I mean, you're not giving your defense any chance when they give them just abhorrent numbers which do just like you're asking for trouble when you give a defense two defensive linemen linebacker numbers, Adam. Yeah, I mean, look, we've we've opined many a time about the the disgrace of some jersey numbers. Matt, is that something that, that grinds your gears at all when players just have numbers that give them no chance to be good players? I'm very upset about it, but you have to credit the Seahawks. They're just trying to, to confuse people. They're like, why is there a, is there a fat linebacker? Why, why, why have we got a fullback on the edge? What's going on? We must, we must do something in their direction. And then suddenly there's a massive tackle for loss and it's Carlos Dunlap, that tricky. Uh, yeah, no, it's weird. I don't mind 43. I kind of, I, I like that. You know, if you your best rush are wearing a weird number in the 40s, the the nose tackle fifty nine thing that is that's odd. I, I, I didn't think that was allowed. I thought yeah. it was legitimately just in the nineties, and that was it. Yeah, I guess defensive lineman can wear like fifties, but he's you don't associate a massive nose tackle for. <laughs> no, oh, oh, I guess there's one in the Clint McDonald wore like sixty five, didn't he? When in 2013 NBA when I saw 59 was like what on who is that oh it's our oh, for so he's in the bin yeah he's in, in the bin careering in the bin Adam 
But I'm so, I couldn't be happier that you've brought up the number 59 because 59 and 61, even though it worked in our favor, are two numbers that are starting to get me a bit. And it's, it's the long field goals in the NFL. <laughs> and the Washington football team pulled themselves back from the depths of absolute despair. Uh, and, you know, they, they tie the game. And then Matt Stafford, you know, admittedly, Chase Young with a ridiculous play, give up a penalty. Do we really want games being won on 59-yard field goals? It just seems so kind of, well, like when we got down by Atlanta in 2012, it just didn't seem fair that they could knock a field goal from from such a long way away. It doesn't really feel like in, in the spirit of the game, Matty, that we're, and, and you know, Jason Myers knocked one over from 61 yards. It, oh, it, it, kickers aren't real people. Are we really adding anything to the game by having field goals from that length of, of, of away? No, it's not fair. I mean, defense always, always, always just has to suffer. You get a stop. You're like, oh, that's great. They'll, they'll punt it back to us. Nope, 61-yard field goal like it's nothing. How is that even? Like, this is an offensive first league. They keep changing the rules. Now they've got no fans in the stands. Well, that's probably a good thing. But that means the kickers can look like superheroes with their massive legs just smacking it through like it's nothing. Very unfair. Stuart, I hope you agree with me. I don't know. It was quite further. I mean, we went two and a half years without watching a field goal attempted of over 45 yards with Hauschka, Janikowski, and I know the, the corpse of an Indo Marais or whatever it was last year. But I don't know. It was quite, I mean, I wasn't watching it when it happened. I was like, oh, we got a field goal. Like, it was a weird design playing call to get to a, I mean, yeah, a 61 yard field goal. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, good, yeah, good one, Pete. Let's say that, man. Let's just, uh, just, just go, and, go open the fridge and get a beer. I was not watching it. I was like, and I heard like the Joe Buck scream. I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. But no, I don't mind it. I mean, like Jake Elliott uh, a couple of years ago for the Eagles was pretty fun. And Carson Wentz kind of just he had bet in something as well, didn't he? That, that time as well. It's just kind of fun, but. I don't know. It was just, it was wild to watch a Seahawks kick a, kick a 61 yard field goal, a franchise record and everything. But I mean, the fact that it was like Jason Myers is clearly a good kicker. He, he's only really missed one field goal of the two he's kicked, it feels like. At certain, he only kicked two for the first six weeks, I think it was. But of all the Seahawks kickers we've had, it's like he's, he just, he would not be the one you'd imagine could kick it that far. So it's Seabass who just, Kicked it at all angles and distances. Hauschka was relatively strong-legged, I think. But it's Jason Myers who kind of just has gone about his business really quiet, who kicks, who's going to be in the franchise books alongside Norm Johnson for years to come, Matty. So I guess is my point to put something in a bin? Yes, please. I've, so, been looking forward to this, uh, oh. I've been looking forward to it ever since we invited you on. So um, so, like, so, other people in the bin are Skip Bayless every week, Jerry Jones, Hugh Jackson was the, was like... The original. The, the, the original. original timeshare member. Yeah, of the bin. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I remember I used to think he was good, which shows I know absolutely nothing. Um, <laughs> I'm going to put the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the bin, the whole thing. The Tom Brady narrative is exhausting. I can't stand it. The Antonio Brown narrative is even more like repugnant. Like, I mean, he clearly needs like genuine help. Like, I feel sorry for him. What we know about the, the kinds of NFL injuries and football injuries peak players can get, like, I'm no expert, but he does not seem right. And the latest thing to come out of there, but like on a, on a less serious note, 
just put them in the bin. I'm I'm sick of them. Like uh, the 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 media's like has this weird like fascination. Well, it's not weird because it, you know Tom Brady's like you know I don't think it can be argued that like, he's the best player to play quarterback or greatest or whatever the goat. But I just I, I hate them I, and I don't like watching them. Like Brady's getting bailed out by his defense occasionally. Uh, they're just I just don't like them. They're like a win at all costs. Yes, the Seahawks themselves had a rumored interest in Antonio Brown. Good job they did their due diligence. But um, yeah, put them in the bin. I mean, karma-wise, you would assume that normally something in the future would have to happen that would be bad to make up for if they won a Super Bowl this year. But could you argue that having a potentially like blind quarterback for the last four years who then gets his eyes fixed and looks fairly decent in New Orleans is kind of a reverse Faustian Mm. deal they've done there perhaps? Mm, yeah, for sure. Jameis Winston with uh, Sean Payton is going to be interesting. Uh, I think the the karma could be their own quarterback like falling apart just when they need him. That would be amusing. <laughs> yeah, like the well, they, they scored all the points in the second half of the Carolina Panthers, but the Carolina Panthers outside of Jeremy Chin, Brian Burns, and Derek Brown don't have a lot on that defensive side of the ball. The fact that they're competitive in most games is more a testament to Matt, well, the job that Matt Rule's doing in Carolina. And I really think that they could be a team to really try and avoid in 2021 because if they have another strong offseason, maybe a strong draft and find a couple more Jeremy Chins who uh, annoyingly NFL.com and fantasy football changed his designation from DB to Albie, which ruined my team. Um, but yeah, like, I think that they're a good team and the, the vaunting of them putting up points on that Panthers defense in 2020 is kind of weak. And it's just kind of just like finding ways to praise Tom Brady, but also when Tom Brady's Brady adjacent, I mean, Bill Belichick is in 2020 is controlling the weather. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit spooky. I mean, the, the Lamar Jackson, it's not necessarily the game to, to pick up on him because he, he did probably as well as he could do. But I just wonder if you're getting the odd jitter as a Ravens front office. There's a Ravens fan thinking of $50 million a year, which is probably what he's going to ask for at some point. I don't know what you would say to that, Matty, but he, he would give me the jitters as a potential franchise quarterback forever because if he's not being found out, I think they're certainly finding a way to, to get about him. They need to like reinvent their offense like they can't uh whether that means firing greg roman it probably does mm. they need to find ways to uh spread that out more get out of i mean still maybe use the same personnel but they can't just be in this pistol thing like it's obvious that teams have like deciphered their runs like um Derek class and at qb class he uh that's class with a k he um did a really good like off-season study on their on their run game and like if if and he he made the point himself if he can do that and sort of break down their run game and like the simplicity of it then you can bet that NFL coaches will do it and obviously that a lot was made about Lamar Jackson saying everyone knows what plays we're running <laughs> well <laughs> on Rich Eisen's show and it's like okay that's always like the the narrative before like the the, the offensive coordinator gets canned um so it'll be interesting to see them in a more eventually I guess a more like um more spread, more shotgun, easier throws, more screen passes, kind of kind of deal. Um, yeah, Lamar, Lamar uh, super talented. Just needs, uh, I think, needs a fresh uh, invention. I think because they're done. That rain was incredible, though. I've never seen anything insane. like it. 
the cameras were just ruined. Like. Yeah, but it, on, on Lamar and Greg Roman, it, the same thing happened in San Francisco, didn't it, with Roman and uh, Kaepernick, where it just kind of like they got sussed out and they just were too implanted with him at OC and it kind of derailed things a little bit <clears throat> for that team as well. So it's interesting how it's happening again with, I mean, because Lamar Jackson was good with no coach at college. I mean, he was a, Heisman with I mean you look at who his coach was in college you kind of yeah this guy can probably do it with anyone but yeah there's there's issues uh, at that team which are probably going to be papered over somewhat I mean because they're still going to make the playoffs aren't they Matty? Yeah yeah of yeah, course they will so, um, and it's, it's, other... it's not a fun team to play in the playoffs either with that defence got Humphrey and Peters mm. That defense is built to like force turnovers and like it's built for like a dominant offense, maybe not in maybe like a 30 points a game offense, not like 50. Like, yeah, the the most they'll score is 30, but like ground and pound, like exhaust you. But the defense is forced to force turnovers, and when they're like playing on like an even kill with a team and the offense is struggling a bit more, they start to struggle because a lot of the stuff they do is reliant on the team they're playing having to like play from behind a bit and like a lot of the skies, a lot of pressure. that stuff um yeah yeah um what what one more thing which maybe been worthy but i thought it was hilarious for how pointless it was nick chubb uh on sunday ran 52 <laughs> yards or 55 ran out of bounds but i'm not sure why he ran the, the 40 of those yards adam because he'd made the first down he stepped anywhere out of bounds the game was over it was just kind of funny how trolley it was that he did it at the two and not the 42 yeah it's the kind of thing that in on uh, English soccer slash football Twitter would get like a two clapping hands emojis and class <laughs> from a Ravens fan or something like that uh, it did seem like a, a very strange way it seemed like a classy thing to do it was almost like he got so entrenched in his own head about needing not to score that he was just like yeah, as close as I can. But normally you would even take a knee in that situation. You wouldn't yeah. run out of bounds. It, it was really odd. Um, yeah. And it was quite funny seeing the fantasy versus the gambling communities on Twitter both go equally bananas uh, for various different reasons. Um, the only surprise is that I wasn't playing with Nick Chubb and my fantasy team because <laughs> that would be full, full coys. Well, one of my mates had him in his uh, DraftKings team, so that did not go down particularly well and I also had that game over 55 points so it's 3-0 with 8 minutes to go I was delighted uh, I think that's everything Adam yeah I mean uh, Matty obviously thanks again for joining us where can people find your uh, terrific work uh, thank you for having me I've really enjoyed this my at on Twitter is at Matty F Brown that's just the letter F it's my middle name you'll never find find out what it stands for football and then <laughs> i write for at seahawk maven the sports illustrated uh, like sort of subdivision site um where you can find my tape analysis videos and also written work with videos too uh, yeah thanks again guys no no massively appreciate it if anyone is on twitter is this and just want to goes and clicks on some of the timestamps on matty's tweets just to realize just <laughs> how manic this guy is and but also as adam pointed out how um on the nose and uh, accurate his work and observations are. Uh, we'll have to get you on when things are a little bit, maybe a bit more cheerier and we can uh, talk more like of how Schottenheimer and Norton are going to be the hot head coaches in 2022, maybe. 
Yeah, I'd love to do that. <laughs> maybe, maybe you could go uh, for a pint as well. Oh my god! <laughs> for a pint, yeah, maybe, maybe we can do uh, we can do a live show over the Super Bowl parade in February over a pint. That would be uh, the dream situation. I the dream, the dream. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, all the usual means and methods to get involved on the podcast, the Facebook group, Facebook page, the Patient Podcast UK, Seattle Seahawks fans at Seahawks UK on Twitter. Uh, the Patient Podcast is on. Podbean, Spotify, and iTunes, but obviously you already know that because that is how you are hearing me say those words. So until next time, this has been the Pedestrian Podcast. Go Hawks. Do you have any concerns this is something that would keep you out of Thursday's game or impact you down the road? Or Hell no. <laughs> it's just part of the game. I'm going to be there. What time we play? Thursday? Five, uh, 5.15, I think. I'll be there at 1 o'clock. <laughs>